Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I forgot what order we went in. It's been so long. <laughs> Do over now. I'm Jason Dickey. <laughs> hey guys, nice to see you again. It's been a while. What's up? Uh, you, lots of things are up, but uh, I can't go through all of them in the course of a podcast. Well, I'm glad you're back at uh, into, into the continental US. Yeah. Although, you know, hmm. been fun that the vacation went on forever, but, you know, they can't. So. Mm, I don't know how fun that would have been. Yeah. I started missing, like, people and things near the end. Yeah. I've never had a vacation that long. I should try that. It was it was intense. Yeah. It was my first vacation quite that long and it was it was almost too much. One where you where you start to get homesick. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's the goal for the next vacation. Yeah. Like I, I know I told you this earlier, but literally when I first walked in the door, <laughs> I was like, Why does this place not look like my place? I mean it looks like my place, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like my place. This is a different place. What the hell? There's a there's a name for a psychological disorder where people believe that everyone that they they, they yeah. encounter is replaced by an imposter i i rem- this, this is like that but your house that yeah. went through my head i <laughs> was like i know this is my place but oh my god it feels different this is what must be like to be one of those people oh dear yeah but that cleared up in like i don't know by the time i woke up because we walked in um 7 30 8 a.m and hadn't slept in 26 hours, so just went upstairs and napped for a few hours. This isn't my house. I don't give a shit. Just... <laughs> yeah. There's a bed up there. I know where it is, and I'm sleeping in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember feeling this sort of, I need a vacation for my vacation feeling, especially when you're there with family members. Yes, yes. I was really worried about that. But, uh, you know, my parents have had over two decades to grow, and so have I. And it went so much better than any previous vacation where they were around. That's really cool. Yeah. I was strongly suspecting that it would, but I didn't know how to convince you of that. And I had no background on, like, which to base that on, other than the fact that, like, it's been two decades of different dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you're you're no longer, like, the kid. Yeah. So any sort of, like, of that stress from, from you know, childhood vacations is gone. Right. Um, but I'm glad that it would that it worked out, so... It was really good, actually. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. But we are not here to talk about my Hawaii vacation. We're here to talk about other things. Fine. <laughs> and before we jump into the less wrong posts like we usually do, I figured I would pull this out real fast. I was looking through the Astral Codex 10 uh, classified thread because Astral Codex 10 is um, the new Slate Star Codex, and I love it and read every single post. Uh, I usually don't read the classifieds, but somehow just managed to stumble across this one. Rob McIntyre. Do you remember Rob McIntyre? Yeah, we're, we're on a we're on a Rob basis now, right? Not that's Robert. right. All no, right. not Robert anymore. Right on. He was on the podcast, so now he's Rob to us. <laughs> no, but Robert McIntyre was on the podcast uh, specifically about um, brain preservation using plastic plastization, and uh, I saw in the com in the classified thread that he is currently hiring a lab assistant near Portland, Oregon, for work on brain preservation research. So that's fucking awesome. He's he's doing well for himself. Do you remember when we interviewed uh, Rudy Hoffman about his book? Yeah. And he mentioned that he knew somebody who was working on like brain plasticity or something, or he heard of somebody. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, Robert McIntyre. We talked to that guy. Because yeah. he's the only. And he, Literally the only person he, working on it. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I know it's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a small world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With our interests. But if you would like to help preserve our brains after we die, specifically mine, it's the one I'm most interested in. But I would like you guys to be there too. Jace, are you signed up yet? No. <sighs> Okay, uh, <laughs> I, I, I know. Right income. now, it's right now. It's a very inconvenient time. I'm just like, man, could have signed up back in the day. This yeah. is what happens when you cryocrastinate. Well, also, I'm more interested in the plasticization than the yeah. freezing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, uh, hopefully, our all of our brains will be preserved uh, after we cease to have functional metabolisms, and uh, then we will be revived 
assuming we even get to that point. Yeah, I kind of hope to just not have to deal with any of that, but yeah, better to be. It's safe. good to have a backup plan. Yeah, yeah exactly. pre- preservation is my fallback plan. Yeah. I don't put a lot of confidence in it. My my primary plan is just don't get you know don't die don't, don't die. get dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if there is ever if someone becomes aware of a way to sign up for the I don't know what he'll call it. Maybe the McIntyre process of plasticization. Mm-hmm. Uh, let us know. Because right now, cryo is the only way that I you can sign up for. I, you can't sign up for it yet because he's working on this research, oh, which you could help him with if you got a job with him. Well, the thing is, is my understanding from talking with him is that it basically works. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you should be able to sign up. It's my fucking brain. I think right, the last right. I checked, you can actually sign up, but I might be thinking of something else. Um, I think not specifically with him, but there is some, you can get your brain preserved because they do have that, but it's a more destructive plastic, I can't say the word. Plasticization? Process, yeah. Um, Anyway, I'm not a scientist, but he is. So if you're a scientist and want to do that, do it. Yeah. Also, if you've ever been interviewed on this podcast and you like post something in the classified threads, maybe ping one of us, maybe we'll signal boost it. But this one I was particularly interested in because, you know, the whole brain preservation thing is, is a thing that I would like to happen to my brain. And any research on it is great. And, you know, it's not like a volunteer gig. He does pay his lab research assistant. Uh, But moving on to stuff. Shall we go to our regular less wrong posts? Uh, Our sequences? Yeah. Yes. Uh, The first one then being evaluability and cheap holiday shopping, in parentheses. And uh, when I was listening to the episode last week uh, that you guys did, I was like, stop talking about it. No. It it didn't occur to me. Well, But it turned out you didn't. Well, we weren't even talking about this post. We were just talking about the idea in general. And it yeah, happened, yeah. To, you know, it was just on the brain, I guess. Yep, yep. I think uh, either one of those sequences we did mentioned it or the main topic mentioned something like it. We got on that subject for some reason, surely. Our segues usually start somewhere. Mm. Or our digressions usually start somewhere. <laughs> well, you got on it when you mentioned the next week's post and then you started talking about next week's post. And I was like, wait, oh, was that what we did? Week? No. Yeah. But you, it wasn't, you know... It wasn't exactly right on topic after I read the top post, so, yeah. This show needs three hosts. Nah. To, to, I mean, otherwise, it's too easy to, to digress for too long. I mean, the more hosts you have, the more digressions you get, right? No, I think that... I, I think two people digress, and then one person, you know, reels it back in eventually. Okay. The well, goal is to keep this digression conversation meta-analysis going for the rest of the episode. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we don't actually have to talk about anything? So the secret to holiday shopping, like we, I guess, alluded to a couple weeks ago, is buy an expensive cheap thing yes. rather than a reasonably priced expensive thing. Yes. The, the key, though, however, to this episode is valuability, and this is just used as, as an example of that. Evaluability? I liked how I a 16 gig iPod Nano was, uh, or iPod Touch was $400. Yeah, right. I just bought a flash drive on Amazon for 18 bucks, 256 gigs. And I just, I... I I messaged that to to Brian, who is my from We Want More. I think he just turned forty nine this year, okay. and I was like, "Dude, look at this thing! Eighteen bucks for." And there was some that was like, "Buy one, get one free," but I, those looked like cheap knockoffs. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "I remember when I bought my first one. It was like whatever. It's like one like megabyte. a couple megabytes in the nineties, <laughs> and Google tells me it was for the equivalent of four hundred dollars or four hundred fifty okay. or something. Yeah. So yeah, I just remember that when the two hundred megabyte ones came out, two hundred sixteen megabyte or whatever." My first up- computer upgrade was when I went from four megabytes of RAM to eight megabytes of RAM, and that cost me a hundred dollars. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Eight megs of RAM is like a Christmas card now. <laughs> I know that I can't buy eight megs of RAM. I know yeah. that's hyperbole, but it, I mean it's it's not that much of a hyperbole. Well, no, you you literally couldn't buy that no. little RAM. 
Um, <laughs> anyways, yeah, the, it starts out saying if you buy someone a $45 scarf, you're more likely to be seen generous than if you buy them a $55 coat. Uh, and then use that to leapfrog into the idea of evaluability. Uh, evaluability. There we go. I think I finally said it right that last time. Uh, by pointing out that in one study, and again, these are social studies, which we all know are a bunch of lies and never replicate, but... Uh, given that, in this particular study, uh, people were asked if they would rather have a dictionary or how much they would pay for two dictionaries, one with 10,000 words, one with 20,000 words and a torn cover. And uh, the, the answer was when they were given both options, they obviously paid more for the 20,000 words one. But when they were only given one or the other in isolation, they uh, paid more for the 10,000 word one without a cover. Or with a great cover. And Eliezer says the reason for this, supposedly, is because the number of entries in a dictionary is more important than it has whether it has a torn cover. At least if you ever plan on using it. Uh, but if you're only presented with a single dictionary and it has 20,000 entries, the number 20,000 doesn't mean very much. Is it a little? Is it a lot? Who knows? It's non-evaluable. And real quick, do either of you have any idea how much is a 20,000 word dictionary a lot? Is that a little? Is that like a dictionary for kindergartners, or is that... It doesn't sound like that many, but... It doesn't sound like that many. I've got, I guess, a real dictionary has more. Like, just because doesn't the English language have on the order of a couple hundred thousand words? Uh, yes. And while, while you wouldn't need to capture all of them in a dictionary, you'd probably want to capture more than, like, whatever, an eighth. There's, like, the dictionary we had at the library that was massive. Uh, like, it had its own podium. Mm -hmm. And... There was a dictionary that I had in, like, my childhood home growing up that was basically for playing Scrabble, and it was the, like, size of a small paperback. So, like... Do you remember how many words were needed? No. Um, I, I never got around to finish counting them, yeah. It says... <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it says in the front. I know, something. Being, being facetious. According to Google, the second edition of the 20-volume Oxford English Dictionary, so literally 20 books, has 171,000 words in it. Yeah, so 20,000 words is a penance. Well... If it's 20, vol 20 books to hold 171,000? Yeah. 20,000 entries is actually a fair chunk of that. Well, it's a fair chunk, but I'm just saying if I, if I was buying a dictionary, I don't want half of one volume, right? <laughs> I want all the words. They say that of those 171,000, 47,000 are obsolete. Probably need <laughs> all of them. So, any, well, here's the thing. My, my quick thought on this. 1993 money. People are willing to pay an average of 24 bucks for the dictionary. I mean, between 20 and 30 bucks rounding mm -hmm. for this thought for this experiment. Yeah. I call bullshit. I don't know what that was in 1993 money, but that was more than 25 bucks now. And that's way too much for a dictionary. That said, dictionaries are more accessible to us now because we all have phones. But I don't think that's I, an unreasonable amount, honestly. because For a dictionary that contains roughly one-sixth of the words. <laughs> all right, so a, there's... You don't, you don't want every single word, because again, you don't want 20 volumes of dictionary in your house, right? You just want one dictionary that you use. If I'm dropping 30 bucks. I... That's, I mean, <laughs> for a single encyclopedia book, that was a reasonable price back I then. I know it was. 20, 30 bucks. For and dictionaries, about the same thing. For just bound blank pages, I'd be lucky to get 20 bucks. Okay. For... <laughs> Can I, uh, most paperback dictionaries contain about 50,000 words. The oh. average home dictionary has about... 100,000 words. Whoa. And the biggest dictionary in America, which I think was the one we had at the library, uh, Webster's Third International, contains more than 40,000 words. Wait, you just said the average home one contains 100,000, didn't you? Yes. Uh, I think it, by biggest, maybe they just mean... Hmm. You know what could be? Maybe Oxford and Webster's Amazing have long paragraphs describing every word and all the various permutations of the word. Like, here's the 17 different meanings of the word, but... And it could be, too, that... One of those metrics that Jace just found is giving you the word count of the dictionary, not the number of words that it defines. Son of a... Which, which would be sneaky. Hmm. In any case, I don't want to get hung up on the wrong part. Right, we're getting digressed again. Yeah. But 
here's the gist. Once you can compare the two dictionaries, people are like, oh, I want the one with more numbers or more words. Yeah, yeah. So but if you can't, and all you can really go on is like, I guess, well, the cover's torn, so it's got to be worth less than a non-torn cover dictionary, so you pay pay less for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, there was, I got to pull this out too, because it, it, it's... Oh, hold on. This is a music dictionary. What's a music dictionary? In the experiment. Willing to pay for a secondhand music dictionary. Did I just skim over the word music? I skimmed over it every single time I listened to and read same this paragraph I. so far. So, wow. Same did I. Same so, did I. <laughs> so I withdraw all of my complaints about the word count. <laughs> You probably don't have 100,000 words to talk about music. 20,000 is probably plenty. Most dictionaries contain about 50,000 words. Average home dictionary has 100,000 words. Yeah, I don't know how to square this with the whole Oxford thing, aside from maybe they're just writing a fucking essay on every single word the, in uh, Oxford. article that I pulled up at the end says, In 2010, a school district in Southern California temporarily removed all copies of the Merriam-Webster 10th Collegiate Edition from elementary school classrooms mm. because it was considered too explicit when it came to sex. Okay. We we had a big one when I was in, I can't remember what school I was even in, elementary or junior high, but it was like in the library on its own kind of podium thing. Mm-hmm. And whenever I passed it, I turned it to the page with sex or naked or something, right? Just because it was funny. Oh, here's this. Uh, a second edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. There are pro- approximately 600,000 word forms defined. So yeah, I guess word and word forms are separate things. All right, we're getting bogged down though. You have yeah, sneaky nerd sniping <laughs> so, Google. So, 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 so running past this though, people are... Uh, when when you, the point is, you need something to compare what you're getting to, right? Yes. So if I'm getting a thing, great. But what am I? What am I? What's my baseline? Is this a good deal or not? Yeah. Right. If I have no baseline, then I have no idea if it's a good deal. One of the great one of the great ones was a uh, ice cream. The ice cream cups. One had uh, eight ounces of ice cream in a really big cup, so the ice cream was kind of down below the lid. Mm-hmm. The other had seven ounces of ice cream, so one ounce less, but in a little small cup, so it was overflowing, and people would pay more for the overflowing one. Right up until the point that they were actually, you know, shown side by side. No, it was, I think... Because they were comparing the, the ice cream to the size of the cup it was in. So if you're going to sell stuff uh, that's being consumed out of a container, always make sure the container is a little bit too small. I'm surprised that even having seen them side by side... No, after they saw them side by side, they, they adjusted. No, no, I'm just saying I'm surprised that they adjusted even after... I guess if you're shown pictures, that's yeah. fine. But I think if you showed people two cups of ice cream... Mm. And like, which one would, which one do you want? And like, even if you could tell one had more, you're like, this one looks like it's overflowing with ice cream. I want that one. But, I feel, I feel like psychologically, that's just that's how it would work if okay. you're showing them real ice cream, like I'd, the red I'd, bean thing. Yeah, well, except like this, the diagram couldn't make it clear. I just think if you showed them two cups, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have the volumes labeled on them or whatever. Mm-hmm. You just see one that looks like it's full of ice cream and one that looks like it's you know almost full of ice cream. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think pictures. That's that's one of the weaknesses. Yeah. A fun thing that I pulled out here that I just had to mention um, was that they also found that someone who uh, was given a choice between a two do- certain $2 and a gamble where you could get $2 but you have a possibility of losing $0.05 cents, preferred the gamble. Which I guess makes sense because if you're gambling, you want some kind of game of chance and just getting $2 is not a game. As it points out, you can make a gamble more attractive by adding a strict loss. No one who truly appreciates the wondrous intricacy of human intelligence wants to design a human-like AI. Just great snark on humans. It's a fun takeaway sentence, but I... So this is fun. Uh, having been a twin my entire life, hmm. um, we got to participate in twin studies and still do once in a while at the uh, Institute for Behavioral Genetics in Boulder. And I remember some years ago, maybe as in junior high or high school, they gave us some, some test kind of like this. And it was... You kept betting on the computer thing. And... I asked him when it was done. I was like, so what was this actually testing? You know, I can't spoil the results because it's done, right? And he's like, well, the 
the game was rigged. It started paying out less and less as the more it went on. So it was just testing to see how much you bet. The thing is, you got to keep the money. So it's like, oh, it's real money. But it was like, I think, two or five bucks. And so, like, that's the thing is, you know, with these $2, like, what do I want, $2? Or do I want to play a game? Right. And so that's that's one of the takeaways with some of these. Like, this is, I'm assuming in... uh, that's a good point. At least then you're having some fun in the study. You're having fun. You're not giving, you're not driving out to somewhere to get a two dollar, you know, two yeah. single dollar bills. You're going out to play play some game, mm-hmm. and it's like paying p- penny slots, right? Yeah. At least that's a game. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I uh, this destruction is one of those things that I bet this would even replicate. You mm-hmm. know, it it but it, it doesn't just doesn't matter. It just doesn't actually seem to matter, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if I was a robot, I want the two dollars, right? Right, but. Because I'm a person and I like having fun, I'd rather spend, uh, I'd rather have the the risk of losing a nickel mm-hmm. than be able to play a game, right? Mm-hmm. I think uh, I'm trying to remember. I read somewhere that, or it was my understanding that whenever it doesn't really matter the amount of money, but just when you add money to an equation, as opposed to like Reese's cups or something, it automatically just gets people have this association with money as valuable, mm-hmm. regardless of like how valuable, how much money it is. But, um, I, yeah, can't remember the source thing. But yeah, uh, it kind of ends with saying if you could, yeah, like we were talking earlier, if you could spend 400 on a 16 gig iPod touch, your recipient sees the most expensive MP3 player. If you spend 400 on Nintendo Wii, your recipient sees the least expensive game machine, which is better value. Uh, and honestly, it's the Wii, but that question only <laughs> makes sense if you see the two side by side. Uh, if you think about them if you see them side by side when you're shopping, but the recipient only sees what they get. So they're like, wow, out of all the, uh, they don't see like he had $400. This is the thing he chose for $400. They see he bought me a uh, MP3 player. And out of all the MP3 players, he bought me the most expensive one. Now, two things about this. One, you inserted the bit that the Wii is the better deal. That wasn't in the post, but you're well, right. I know. Yeah. But it was just clear. Cause you know, you you were quoting some and then inserted another, mm-hmm. um, but you're right. The Wii is the better deal because anything plays mp3 is but only one Wii, right mm-hmm. um but also it's funny just how much this dates the post right <laughs> and 400 bucks i that might have been i think that was within 50 bucks of the gaming consoles back then i think the playstation 2 3 i forget must have been the 3 that came out right around with the Wii. um yeah the Wii came out in i'm gonna say 2006 give or take a couple of years okay because i remember i did an overnight I waited in line to get one at like Best Buy in the middle of the night. Right. So that was fun. Nice, yeah. The I went and did the same thing for a PlayStation 4 last week or the week before. PlayStation 5. And <laughs> that was the first time I'd done that since 2011, doing like waiting in line for a game thing. Yeah. But the time before that might have been the Wii, so. Cool. Yeah. But yeah, so um, he also says, by the way, if you actually use this trick, I want to know what you bought. And we are also interested in that. <laughs> I was wondering how much this scales really like before people start to get suspicious like what's i don't know like it seems to scale without well <laughs> like i'm just wondering like could you buy the most expensive and i'm trying to think of something ridiculous <laughs> you mentioned toothpicks and dust specs uh, yeah. <laughs> i have a good one so remember like in 2016 for like two weeks there's that thing where people are trying to be like oh yeah if you're wearing a paper clip it signals oh. you as an ally to people. no not a paper clip a safety pin safety pin because and... that means you're safe Yes. Oh, that's funny. I didn't put that together. I figured you could hurt somebody with a safety pin, but which makes the name kind of. A, it's know. because, as opposed to a pin that's just a straight pin. In any case, I remember, <laughs> see, I, I remember seeing links to gold ones like on Etsy that were like 160 bucks or something. Oh wow! And they might have been gold paint. I have no idea. Yeah. But like, 
that that time sounds like strikes to me as like the kind of thing it's like oh here's here's a safety pin it costs forty dollars and i left the price tag on it <laughs> that's where i see crystal on it I, yeah. uh i guess you'd, you you don't want to be gauche and leave the price tag on so you got to buy something that somebody knows was really expensive which yeah. is i guess the uh appeal of apple products if you get one somebody knows that you got raped in the wallet <laughs> for no good reason basically <laughs> but the goal is to not spend Apple money, right? You want to get something like more cost effective. Unless you're giving a gift. Well, like, so I, I could get you a MacBook, like whatever, an old MacBook Pro, right? Mm-hmm. Or I could get you a $50 mug. <laughs> and like the mug might be like self-heating or something, right? Yeah. yeah. But I've still saved $2,000. Yes. And you've got a dope-ass mug <laughs> and you might appreciate it more than the MacBook Pro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> this is a top-of-the-line mug, damn it. Damn oh, straight. I just, Okay. Um, I was at the Natural History Museum, and I went in the gift store, and I was walking around just trying to find the silliest item, to not to buy or anything, but just because it, I didn't really want to be in the gift store, but my, my friend wanted to see it. Uh, there was a, I think, I, I forget, it's like $20 or $30 ceramic uh, dinosaur that you put tacos in. Um, it was like a stegosaur, and you would put the taco cool. on top of it, so it has, it, uh, a, I guess, the taco is the, yeah, anyway. Nice. <laughs> it was like... All right, so like for the person that has everything. <laughs> yes, they don't have a dinosaur taco holder. All righty, moving on. This leads directly into the next post, Unbounded Scales, Huge Jury Awards, and Futurism. Um, I'm going to go ahead and nominate this one for worst title so far. It's a pretty bad title. <laughs> it's hard It's hard to say. Yeah. yeah. It tells you what's inside it, though. It does. Yeah. yeah I mean, Hopeful so that way. It, it could be worse. I'm not saying it's, it's the literal worst. I'm sure we can, we'll get a worse title eventually <laughs> here out of the however many thousands of posts. This week's post, Hitler did nothing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's about jury selection. <laughs> Hitler, back when he was a defense attorney, did nothing wrong during his jury selection. Uh, when you want to... <laughs> When you want to find out how loud an acoustic stimulus is, how bright a light source appears, you usually ask the listener or watcher. Uh, and when you use an unbounded scale for them, uh, instead of like saying how bright is this on 1 to 10, and an unbounded scale is 1 to whatever they want, the observer is typically presented with a constant stimulus, which is given a fixed rating. For example, a sound is a sound assigned a loudness of 10. Then the observer can indicate a sound twice as loud as the modulus by writing 20. But what happens if you give subjects an unbounded scale but no modulus? Zero to infinity with no reference point for a fixed value. Basically the same thing. They make up their own modulus. And I'm just going to take a quick break here to say that's usually how our book club ratings work. We don't have an unbounded scale. Our scale is from 1 to 10. But basically everyone kind of... The, the first time you join a book club, you're like, well, I don't know what number to assign this. So you kind of signed one like, eh, I sort of liked it. So, you know, 7. Or like, eh, I didn't like it that much. So 4... And then after that, you kind of always think back to the previous few books that you've rated, and you're like, was it better or worse than them? And assign a number based on that. At yeah. least that's been my experience. At, at some point, you'll be familiar with enough books to know what rates a 1 and what rates a 10, and then be more accurate. Yeah. And yeah, that doesn't necessarily require like a, a hard baseline, just because, you know, I don't even have to know what your metrics are, but if, if you tell me, you know, I read three ones last year and two tens, and I'm like, okay, well, the tens sound like it must be good, because, yeah. you know, like, at least that gives me something. Mm-hmm. Um, vaguely related when there's no baseline metric, right? So I watched a review for a video game called Dying Light Two. Okay. Uh, Dying Light was a fun game, kind of like a combination between like first-person parkour uh, shooter fighter game or whatever. I hate first-person parkour. If you can't see where your feet are, how are you fucking parkouring the game? Uh, first-person camera. You jump and grab stuff. It's fine. It, it it played well, but it it was a uh, it was fine. So they did a there's a sequel coming out this week and. 
I usually don't watch like video game reviews because they always suck. And this was a good example of why hmm. the person talked about it. It was like 10 minutes long. They were like, well, it's full of bugs, hmm. like game breaking bugs. Not the kind where it's like, oh, look, that person, you know, standing in T pose for a second. Yeah. Like one of our person, one of our, one of our demoers, uh, it bricked on, like it didn't brick their system, but it, oh it bricked, it bricked the game to where all their save progress was lost and they couldn't get off the start, the start Jesus. menu. Jesus. And like, you know, they'd, they'd fall through the ground into into oblivion, like that sort of stuff. And so there was that. They were like, the character is like if you ordered a protagonist, like a generic protagonist from Amazon and got the <laughs> and got the Chinese knockoff. <laughs> and like the the story sucked. Like the the background was like cliched as hell or whatever. Yeah. Eight out of ten. The, the choices don't matter. Seven out of ten. Seven out of ten. Yeah. Nice. And so I'm like, what the hell warrants a six? Yeah. Like yeah. you told me this game was literally unplayable, and that even when you could play it, it sucked. Like if the game came to your house and broke your dog's legs. <laughs> six and a half. So this this is why you don't look at like IGN for game reviews. You go find like people's who, people whose job is like they don't get paid to review games. Yeah. Right. Well, you can also just know that their real scale is seven to ten. <laughs> yeah, I guess. There's someone in our book club that. If she ever writes a book an eight, I know that it is one of the best books ever. If she ever writes a book a five, I know that this is a piece of turd. <laughs> so that's that's the, that's the upper and lower bound. Her, her real scale, scale is six or seven. Yes. I have noticed uh, when I'm filling out, I guess, like on a scale of one to five. Oh, like I'm thinking of like depression scales or mm. or. Uh, how, I never put one or five. Yeah, that, I'm that's always, what I was getting. I at. somewhat agree with this, yeah. or I somewhat disagree. Or, or I put like om- almost all. Yeah two to four and very few times i'll put a one or a five like they they feel almost taboo like i can't say it's literally the worst or literally the best unless or like yeah i i completely agree apparently if you do that you're screwing your uber driver or whoever because apparently everyone just defaults to five stars if it was fine and (laughs) anything less than five means that there was something bad that happened yeah and the the apps know this so much that they just basically um track people's performance as how many five stars they've gotten as a percentage if you get anything other than five stars for you know more than i think five ten percent of your clients you're like dude something's going wrong we may not be able to employ you anymore i gave somebody a three once it was the most uncomfortable ride i've ever had it See? was, it was and like you gave him a three for the <laughs> most uncomfortable ride ever should be average yeah <laughs> that, that should have been a one right but i'm like i don't want to you know ruin his his score or whatever but like yeah, I got out feeling crazy emotion sick. It was like he was just lead-footed the whole time. And like he was like pissed at traffic, mm-hmm. like audibly. No sound. The seats were uncomfortable. Like the car was dirty and grimy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, three stars. Like, well, you know, you can feel comfortable that you gave him a horrible <laughs> review because it was a non-five right. review. That describes every taxi ride I've ever had. <laughs> I've been in really? clean taxis. Okay. It was, it was, but yeah, no, they're the impatience and the rush and the <laughs> the fear factor. Yeah, that shouldn't be... A part of it, right? I believe I've actually never been in a taxi. You're not missing anything. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, no, you are. It's a weird experience. There's a, at least in the ones in New York, there's like a TV with like commercials screaming at you the entire fucking time. I take it back. Way back in the day, I was in Las Vegas and I took a taxi to go like five blocks down the strip or something. Just to, just cause or because it was 150 degrees out and you didn't want to walk around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if Uber got to really get a leg in very much or, and the, or if this has changed, but I used to drive to New York every weekend and it's like a third of the traffic anywhere is taxis and they're all like out to kill you. <laughs> you like if you see a taxi coming you have to get out of their way. Damn. They're they're going to play chicken. <laughs> they I... will not let you merge. Like <laughs> you know you're in a small town when you try to get an Uber and there's literally no one working. That's, yeah. Yeah, 
that that happened to me in Hawaii <laughs> on one of the uh, out of the way islands. As long as get a car. Wait, what? Yeah. There's no cars. It's it's seven thirty a.m. and you want to go to the airport. <laughs> literally, no one working. Right. Yeah. Where I used to live in New Jersey, there's no public transit. Like you have to drive everywhere. Well, that's most U.S. cities. Uh, or you could like bike thirty minutes to get to the train, which only goes to Philadelphia and back. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. I guess we should get back to this. Yeah, what's this post about? This post is that uh, for a subject rating on a single thing on an unbounded scale without a fixed standard, nearly all the variance is due to the arbitrary choice of the modulus rather than to the sound or thing itself. And he says, hmm, you think to yourself, this sounds an awful lot like juries deliberating on punitive damages. No wonder there's so much variance. I don't know if there's anyone who read this post ever in the history of this post that said that as they were reading it. But uh, I like that he put that in for us, assuming that we were so much smarter than we actually are. Or the, I don't know, that's just very specific, too. Yes. Because <laughs> I was thinking of other things that this reminded me of, but that were, like, relevant to my experience. Ooh, which, what, what did you come up with? Um, I was actually going to say this earlier, and it's slightly different, but um, I was thinking about the way, oh, what is it called? Um, Anchoring, I guess? Mm-hmm. The way also when... um. Like, for your book club, if you don't have an established scale of sort of what merits a 2 versus a 7 or whatever, then um, whoever is the first one to be like, okay, I'm thinking uh, like a 7, and then everybody's going to like also be around, like, 7 is what this one person said, so they're going to anchor on that. Yeah. So if you disagree, you're going like, to go down. Like, I think it wasn't that good. Maybe a 6. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas if the first person had said 5, the, per- the next person will say, oh, it wasn't that good. Maybe four. 4. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Point. But yeah, he says jury awards uh, for punitive damages aren't really an economic valuation in so much as they're a uh, attitude expression, a psycho, a psychophysical measure of outrage expressed on an unbounded scale with no standard modulus. And he relates this to futurism. <laughs> He's describing video game reviews as well. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he relates this to futurism where uh, some people are asked, how soon do you think AI will be there? And, you know, a bunch of people just give random numbers. And one person in specific said probably about 500 years. And he said, that is, that is, wow, that's the craziest number I've ever heard. Basically was not what he said, but the impression you get if you're reading this. What he actually said is, if I'd asked on a scale where zero is not difficult at all, how difficult does the AI problem feel to you? If this were an unbounded scale, every sane respondent would mark extremely hard at the right hand's end. People just make up a number to represent extremely hard, which may come out as 50 or 100 or even 500. Then they tack years on the end. Hmm. <laughs> Seems entirely recent. How hard is this? Five hundred hard. Yes. Years. Yeah. yeah years. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking of was I actually used to do um like A B testing and like focus testing for when I worked in the video games industry, and I would try really hard to use Likert scales, uh, which is the one that's like strongly disagree, disagree, neither agree nor just like instead right, of numbers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or something else that would be. That would just give you some specificity. Do you see A-V testing or A-B testing? Uh, A slash B testing. Okay, okay. Like two logos for the app store and one of them has a boat in the background and the other one has a big sun. Yeah, I just I misheard you. Okay, so for next time, we are reading The Halo Effect, Superhero Bias, and Mere Messiahs. That is three of them, but they all go together, so we're reading all three of them. And we will spend less time per each one, so we don't go, you know... Challenge accepted. You had to say that. <laughs> I did, yes. Yeah. Just because there's the word superhero. Oh, I feel oh, like damn. we're going to get... <laughs> <laughs>
Well, we can, we can reference method to rationality for at least two of those. So, Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to our main subject. We have two main subjects this time because I figure both will be fairly short and uh, <laughs> as I get laughed at. <laughs> but but I've, I figured they'll both be fairly short and I would love to cover both of them. So let's do that now. Uh, the first one is use normal predictions. Yeah. Uh, this was written by our very own... Our very own. He's on our Discord. Andrew's in the... Um... And therefore, we claim rights to him. I mean, you know, we don't get nothing. That's right. Uh, no. <laughs> but uh, he was in uh, the um, Guild of Servants as well. Uh, Jan Christian Refsgard. And, Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Jan, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It sounds right. Yeah. So if I got your name wrong, ping me and let me know and I will issue a correction. And this is... Uh, referencing a thing that rationalists like to do, which is make our beliefs probabilities rather than hard, this is true, this is false things. And to make our beliefs probabilities, we got to put some sort of percentage estimate on how true we think something is. And then a common exercise is to make a bunch of predictions using probabilities and then see how well we do as predictors to... Uh, See how good we are at having accurate beliefs about the world. How calibrated we are, I and guess. And to hopefully get better at it. And yes, especially to hopefully get better at it. And because the way that most people think about probabilities is, well, I think there's like an 80% chance that this thing will happen. Really, really hard to measure how accurate we were. Like in 2016, if you said, I think there's an 80% chance that Hillary Clinton will win. And then Trump wins. Like, were you wrong? I mean, maybe you were right that there was an 80% chance Hillary would win, and it just happened to be in the 20% that uh, that Trump won instead. So you might be perfectly calibrated, and just it fell in the, the wrong 20% this one time. So what do you do about that? And the answer has typically been make many, many, many predictions, and then all the ones that you rated at 80%, see how many you got right, and if you got 80% of them right, then you're doing it right. If you got 90% of them right, then you're doing it wrong. You are underestimating things, and you should increase uh, how how likely you think those things are. I think it's always a bamboozle, probably even at like a mathematical level, but I'm not a mathematician. Hmm. Um, before I forget, this post was like featured post of the week uh, on Less Wrong. It's a really it good out. post. Yeah. Um, for the reasons we'll get into soon. Totally. But what I was going to say is that it's hard to assign a probability to something mm -hmm. that already happened. Well, yeah, and you're so, supposed to do it for things that happen. No, I know, but like, okay. but like, so, but after the, you know, after the election results came in, mm -hmm. then you can't look back and be like, well, how likely was it that you were right? It's like, well, I was apparently a hundred percent wrong. Right. Yeah. So it, it, I, again, I'm sure there's some mathematical way of getting around this, but I think it's probably less straightforward than just Bayes' theorem mm -hmm. because I think the example I heard is like, what, what were the odds that like the Cuban Missile Crisis would it was going to end in huge conflict mm -hmm. and it's like how can i possibly answer that mm -hmm. right i guess i could i could try and look up what numbers people gave at the time mm -hmm. right but if they didn't give me an estimate then like i have to say i don't know zero because yeah. it didn't <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway that's that it gets us aside the point i just yeah uh and this this is actually about how to be more better about that kind of thing which is why i found it so useful and i think so many other people did as well i'm glad i read it and even though he said it, you don't have to be very good at math, I, I still am like, oh, this is a little mathy for me. And I, I'm looking forward to the intuitive explanations. So. I will do my best. I'm, we're counting on you. And hopefully Jace can help. Uh, maybe. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm real dumb, y'all. This is going to be tough. All right. <laughs> uh, I am going to link uh, here as well the Astral Codex 10 predictions for 2022. Uh, that's the, uh, not Stephen, that uh, Scott Alexander made. Uh, he does this every year, 100 predictions about the coming year to help calibrate himself. It's really cool. Uh, we can all play along if we want to. But uh, yeah, he's been doing this for like, what, 
six, seven years now? At least. Yeah. Yeah, my uh, Philly Lesser group used to also use his list of predictions and make our own predictions and then uh, score each other uh, each year as like our sort of... Do you remember how good you were? Um, I was pretty good in some categories of thing. I was not good at anything that had to do with guessing like who was going to be the president of France because yeah. I don't really follow that but yeah. like that's why you got to make your own questions about things that you actually know about i was the only one that gave donald trump uh like what did i i forget i it was something very low like 30 or 40 percent but it was still way higher than everybody else and like really that high mm. and then i felt vindicated yeah <laughs> but i was like i don't know congratulations okay i sort it was, of I was, yeah it's like kind of you ruined america <laughs> thanks kind of yeah uh, but, <laughs> kind of but Jan's post is about uh, not doing this anymore. He says that we often make binary predictions when it is not necessary, such as Biden wins the popular vote, 91% probability. Uh, he says that instead of doing this, we could make predictions from a normal distribution. A normal distribution prediction would be something like, I predict that Biden will get 54% of the popular vote with a sigma of three. He says that, as a way to tease us into this, predicting from a normal is surprisingly easy. One. Getting an actionable number for how over or underconfident you are requires only simple math, which I disagree with, but, you know. <laughs> it, it, the math is simple if you're good at math. It's uh, a little daunting if you're not. Uh, but still, it is very useful nonetheless. And the normal, inter normal distribution carries more information than the... He uses the word Bernoulli. We're going to use the term binary outcome, this <laughs> uh, prediction, and will therefore give you more information to act on. So, how do we make a normal distribution? A normal distribution has two parameters, which we talked about before, the percent of the popular vote you think Biden's going to get, which is 54, and the sigma, which is 3%. Uh, the actual number you're predicting, the first one, the 54% of the popular vote, that is called mu. It is the most likely and average value that you're predicting. The second number, the uh, how how wide the variance is going to be, is called sigma. This captures uncertainty. High sigma implies high uncertainty. And the key to making a normal prediction is the 68-95-99.7 rule. Uh, and at this point, there is a graph of a bell curve, which I hope everybody is familiar with. Uh, but we'll have it in the show notes, just um, in case you aren't. Uh, the bell curve shows that the mu, the number prediction, is right in the middle, and the bulk of the of, of the bell, the area under the bell, uh, is centered around mu. Within one sigma, should be sixty eight percent of all results. Within two sigma, so if your sigma was three percent, uh, that would be within six percent, should be ninety five percent of all results, and within three sigma, you should have ninety nine point seven percent of all results. And he says, this looks a little complicated, but it's not as bad as you think. Allow me to get into it. To make a prediction, there's two steps. One, predict mu. Predict the actual average that you think is going to happen. Step two is using the 68-95-99 rule to capture your uncertainty. So, in the Biden example, from polls, he got a 54% uh, estimate is what polls seemed to be a... Uh, indicating. So we said that was a good guess for mu, 54%. And then you try to figure out the sigma. A sigma of 2% implies that there is a 97.5% chance that Biden would get more than 50% of the vote. And at this point, there is a, a table that 
we will also link in the show notes that helps to explain this. But um, to to say it in words, if your uh, guess on the um, if your guess is that it's fifty four percent of the vote that he's going to get, and your sigma is two, that means you are assuming that sixty eight percent of the time he will get between fifty two and fifty six percent of the vote because. 54 minus 2 is 52, and 54 plus 2 is 56. Does that make sense? Yes. There's two less and two more <laughs> than your actual prediction, because your actual prediction is mu, and the sigma is 2, so you subtract 2 and add 2 from it. 68% of all the results uh, are going to be within that 52 to 58. And that means within 2 sigma, within 4, is going to be 95% of all results. So between 50 and 58, because now we're subtracting 4 and adding 4 rather than just 2, it will be 95% of all results. So that means you think that uh, between 50 and 58% of the popular vote going to Joe Biden is 95% of results. And then on the tails, the very last little bit is uh, 5% of all remaining possibilities will be uh, either less than 50% or more than 58%. And since more than 58% still counts as a win... Because <laughs> all you need is more than 50%, you take half of that as well and add it in. And half of 5% is 2.5. So you add in 2.5 to 95, you get 97.5% chance that Biden will get more than 50% of the votes. This makes it's easier to see if you're looking at the table. I'm going to stop right here. If you're looking at the table, does what I just said make sense? Uh, the intervals, right? Yeah. yeah. Did any of that make sense if you aren't looking at the table? Because I think there's hmm. a lot of words there that are trying to convey something that is easily put in a picture, but I can't really say it. I think it's just worth reiterating that uh, Mu, which is the, like the little fancy U-shaped letter, mm -hmm. um, that is the uh, what the most likely and the average value. Yes. And then O with a little line on it, sigma, captures the uncertainty. High sigma implies high uncertainty. Yeah. And so... You were looking at sigma 2 and then going over the mu values for those, right? No, the mu value is uh, mu value is 54 regardless. He thinks it's most likely that Biden will get 54% of the vote. But his sigma is 2, so that means 54% plus or minus 2%. Okay, okay. Yeah, and this that's is helping. what yeah. is meant by confidence intervals, right? Yeah. Because we talk about, that's one of those words rationalists like to use. But oh, no. wait. Actually, I think confidence interval is related but not actually this thing this this is more refined to the confidence interval i think because i could i could make i think at least my understanding of a confidence interval is like i can pull two numbers out of my ass and be like or i guess three i think it's 95 percent likely that biden will get somewhere between 30 percent and 70 percent of the vote right mm -hmm. like that's that's my confidence interval but it's not refined at all right um, again i don't know i think confidence interval has an actual technical definition which is basically that but i don't want to say that because uh, I don't actually know what the technical definition is. Fair enough. So basically, the <laughs> easiest way to think of this, in my opinion, is that uh, you're 95% confident that the result will be within 2 sigma of your mu. So if my sigma is 2%, that means I'm 95% confident it's going to be plus or minus 4% of my mu. And since his mu in this case was 54, that means you're 95% confident it's going to be somewhere between 50 and 58. 54 plus or minus 4%. Make sense? Yes, except for the numbers under 95% are 50 to 58, right? And if it's Yeah, because it's 54 plus or minus 4. Oh, I thought it was 52 plus or minus 4. No, no, no. 54. Oh, yeah. Okay, so 52 is what he actually got. 54 was his guess. Okay, yeah. My bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're jumping ahead to see what Biden actually got. I... It's like you're living in the future I'm or something. I'm cheating. <laughs> Um, yeah, 
and um being and, che- being cheating and bad at reading are kind of the same thing so yeah <laughs> and and since he's 95 percent confident uh that it'll be between uh 50 and 58 percent uh that leaves five percent for the tails and again getting more than 50 percent still counts as a win so you can add that two and a half percent uh back to the original prediction so that's saying in effect uh 97.5 chance that biden will uh win and he says i was not that confident then he goes to think about a sigma of four a sigma of four implies an 84 percent chance that biden would get more than 50 percent of the vote uh using that same math uh it, it um would mean that he's 95 percent confident biden would get between 48 and 60 percent of the vote and you can graph that out to see you know what that actually comes in as um but that means a 16 percent chance that trump wins and he thought, that's too high. I don't think there's a 60% chance Trump will win. So he settled on a mu of three, which is between those two and seemed uh, fairly reasonable to him. Uh, turns out Biden did get 52% of the vote, which was within one sigma of his prediction. Because his prediction was 54 plus or minus three, and 52 is within 54 plus or minus three. So good prediction, right? Yeah, it worked. I think so. Yeah. Uh, he can draw two weak lessons from this one data point. First of all, the pollster screwed up. Uh, he should have regressed mu to the mean of 50% uh, and made a prediction like maybe 53 instead of 54. Uh, but also, his prediction was exactly two-thirds of a sigma from mu, uh, which is the right on the 50-50 line of how accurate you are. If you are within two-thirds of one sigma of mu, you're doing a darned good job. Uh, so he says that he was a bit lucky that it was exactly on the two-thirds line, but it's weak evidence that his sigma was well-chosen. So... Huzzah to him. He was well calibrated on that. Yeah. Now he said, imagine instead that I had done a binary prediction like... uh, 91%. Yeah, like 91%. (laughs) And like is normally done in, for example, Scott's uh, posts every year where he, you know, makes 90%, 80% predictions on stuff. Instead, I predicted that Biden wins the vote 91%. Well, he won. So I was right. And that's it. He'd have to make at least nine other predictions that are all 90% confident and see if he got nine of them right and one of them wrong to see if he's correctly confident and stuff. And, I mean, in my opinion, they'd all have to be kind of on the same general topic of politics because otherwise you're taking different domains and you can be more or less sure in other domains. Yeah. So more or less overconfident than those. It just, it doesn't give you very much information at all on its own. Yeah, that was um kind of the problem that I was having with our, you know, Slate Star Codex mm-hmm. uh, predictions, the yearly prediction, because... Obviously, I felt more confident in trying to guess an American election than a French one. Mm. Um, but there's no way to actually capture that confidence. Like, we don't even formalize it. It's just sort of you. You kind of go back and retros like retroactive or not. The <laughs> mm. I feel like I don't have like the correct terminology to even talk about this um, in my head. But like, yeah, basically, yeah. what you can do is say, you know, I'm here. I, I think that like Biden has a 91 percent chance, and then sort of. And I'm pretty sure of that, yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah. Or um, what's the what's the term that people like to use? Oh, yeah, the, like your epistemic status, kind of. Like, yeah, yeah. Epistemic status. I don't really know very much about politics, yes. but I think thirty percent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And here you can capture epistemic status by uh, the number in that you put in sigma. Uh, yeah, he says and it's that... part of the equation too. Like. Yes, a little later when on. When you're scoring yourself. He does say that uh, if he predicted that ninety percent Biden would win and Biden got 52% instead of the predicted 54% of pollsters, then thinking I should have predicted 80% instead of 90% because the pollster screwed up seems weird. 
as that's a weaker prediction and the bold one was right. Uh, so I would need to predict a lot of elections to see if I was under or overconfident. And yeah, that, that that's a darn good point. Like, should he have predicted 80% since he went off of the 54 number and it turned out that 52 was correct? I don't... I don't think so, yeah, it's, because it's Biden still won. Like, yeah. Hard to, you know, we don't have access to, like, the counterfactual world. Exactly. <laughs> and using normal predictions gives you a more of ability to kind of factor in the, uh, the counterfactuals, because then you know if your sigma was accurate. Like, if his sigma had been 1, it would have been a bad prediction. Even though he guessed 54, it would have been two sigmas outside instead of two-thirds of one sigma outside of his... So, yeah. Um, any questions or comments before we continue? Does any of this make sense to you, Stephen? Yeah, I think it's it's helping. Um, let's keep let's keep rolling through it. And if I am still confused by the end, then I'll I'll raise that. Okay. He says he also made a terrible prediction during the early lockdowns in 2020. He predicted. Okay, so here's the formal number, and I want uh, both of you to see if you can uh, parse it out into words. Uh, mu 15,000 deaths with a sigma 5,000 deaths. Yeah, I think this is actually where it lost me when I was trying to read it the first time too. So. What do you mean by parse it? Like, what does that mean in English words? So, um, I'm, the oh, you go first, Stephen. I'm, I'm gonna just give my intuitive guess at it. So, n parenthesis fifteen thousand comma five thousand mm -hmm. uh, close parens. So that's that's the equation, right? It's mm -hmm. just n uh, mu sigma. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like at a at a glance, I'm guessing fifteen thousand deaths plus or minus five thousand, but that's not what it is. No, no. It's 15,000 deaths plus or minus 5,000 is 68% likely, and 15,000 deaths plus or minus 10,000 is 95% likely, because two sigma gives you your 95% confidence. Thank you. See, I appreciate that, because I was looking at that first graph where the sigma intervals are like two, three, four, mm -hmm. or whatever, and I'm like, if I bump those up to 5,000, that's I'm looking at like, you know, sigma interval 5,000, right? But mm -hmm. that's not exactly what, well, I guess it is. See, I'm, uh, that's why I'm, this is hard for me. Okay. But we're getting there. It, it, it's clear enough when you when you laid it out, though. So Yeah, that double your sigma is your plus or minus uh, to the mu is your 95% chance. 95% so chance that plus or minus 10,000 of, well, 15,000 plus or minus 10,000 will be the number of casualties. Okay, putting it that way, it doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. Whatever is your second param, double that, and that's your 95% confidence interval. Yes. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay, I can I can... That that parsed correctly. Great. Cool. Yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> Until that, we get to... Uh... Uh, the actual number turned out to be 3,200, which is 2.36 standard deviations away, outside the 95% interval. So, I mean, you're pretty damn confident. 95% confident that it's gonna fall within this interval, and then it fell outside it. That looks pretty bad. Well, in... In Jan's defense, I feel like that was a very conservative estimate, right? I just given how the rest of the world handled it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think if you if you average the rest of the world, his his prediction would have been well pessimistic, right? No excuses, man. I don't. Oh, is there any excuses when your bridge falls down because you misestimated how many uh, pounds that the steel could hold up? If you were pretty sure, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you should be at least ninety five percent sure, and yet it still fell down. I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to give you on a hard time. No, here. no, of course. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a, of a clever rebuttal about how this, you know, this is just private guessing and not bridge making. But mm. um, let's let's dissect what happened there, I guess. So. And yeah, just ideally, you always want your guesses to be within two thirds of a sigma. So uh, you you'd he'd want his guess to be within three thousand or so of fifteen thousand. 
That is that is what you're shooting for. That said, I I I, I did think of my non pithy pushback to the this is a terrible prediction thing. Like it's a wrong prediction. Mm-hmm. I think it was a good prediction. Okay. But it, it just turned out to be wrong, right? It's now, a I bad prediction if it was that far off. I guess I don't know what to because you're right. When I say bad and when I say good and wrong, it doesn't seem like those two words can work together in the same sentence. Like if you buy but, a stock and you think it's, or if you buy a Bitcoin and you think it's going to be worth 15000 and instead it ends up being worth 3200 you're off by a lot. Right. Uh, I don't know. I feel, I feel like this, at the time, was a perfectly reasonable guess, okay. even though it turned out to be wrong. Okay. Well, but Fair enough. Yeah. That's maybe why I'm not a probability theorist. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you know, you, you, yeah, you want your, your answer to be less the actual answer would be less than one sigma and part of the how confident you are is like if you were really confident in fifteen thousand, then you would say like you know i, I think there's going to be fifteen thousand deaths was a sigma of like 500 so it'll probably be within a few hundred of fifteen thousand, and i'm 95 percent sure it's going to be no more than a thousand plus or minus fifteen thousand what's weird is that if someone said i think it'll be zero mm-hmm. plus or minus five thousand or ten thousand they would have been mm-hmm. right but I feel yes. like that's a stupid prediction, just yeah. given how bad the rest of the world was doing. I, I, I think that this was this was early 2020. So. I think it would mean that you're a bad at predicting how the world is going to react to COVID or how deadly COVID is or something. Yeah, they might. But but they but they but they would have been right in the case of Denmark uh, if they had said, "I think it'll be zero plus or minus five thousand. Well, then they would be good at predicting how COVID <laughs> does in Denmark. Yeah. They have inside information about either how virulent COVID is or how well Denmark is going to handle it. Fair enough. I just feel like at the time I would have called that a bullshit guess, even if it turned out later to be right. Well, <laughs> hard to call bullshit on something that's right. That's why I think I like you can't take a, a like a predictive system or uh, you need a data set of here's my prediction uh, calibration uh, history, right? Sure. Here's how good I usually am. At predicting um, novel virus death rates or something? Or or just whatever you know yeah. like scott does scott alexander does his thing every year right um, I, I think the domain that you're predicting makes a big difference it does but i guess like if if somebody came out and said i don't know i think there's 100 percent chance biden will win well that's a stupid guess but mm-hmm. they were right because it because because they because he won if that was the only prediction they made they don't get a perfect track record they don't even get points right well i mean but what if they made prediction that i think biden is going to get 52 percent of the vote with a sigma of 0.01%. That that's a better prediction just because it's more it's clearly more thought went into it, right? No. If you think that a sigma of less than a sigma of 100th of 1%, you're basically saying he's I predict he's going to get exactly 52% of the vote. That's, that's better a, that's better than saying that I I'm 100% confident he'll win, isn't it? it it's saying that I'm 100% confident he's he's going to win. I think oh, I guess you're right though. The, they 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 do amount to the same thing. One's yeah. more precisely overconfident though. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Almost makes it worse. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, and I'm I realize that I'm just assuming that the post author is from Denmark. Yes. Okay. Because that was my um, response to you know like I think Steve was saying like it, it strikes me as a perfectly reasonable prediction. Uh, he just might have more information about how Denmark does with like virus outbreaks uh with following like things like masking orders or what's the population of denmark Fifteen thousand. <laughs> <laughs> it's 5.8 5. million <laughs> that, that'd be funny so, so almost six million okay um ah, faster at typing than me see well actually i, I cheated i, I, I asked you guys while i asked my phone at the same time oh. um, so fifteen i'd have to do math 
and that's going to take me a second, which is not fun audio, but I feel like that was a reasonable approximation for given what we just passed 900,000 deaths in the U S right. I don't know. Something like that. Okay. Um, out of 360 million. So you guys do the math, but I, I he's guessing a death rate of 0.2%. Well, that's actually spot on with the, with basically the mortality rate, right? Uh, I mean, apparently not because the, he, not in Denmark, but, but in other parts of the world, I Denmark seems know. to have handled this really well. <laughs> he was guessing for in, Denmark though, not for the world as a whole. In the U S uh, looks like 901 K. So exactly just passing 9,000, 900,000. Out of, we got 300 million, uh, 300 pe- million people here, right? I think it's 350. Something like that. Give or take. Ask. I'm sorry. I'm going to make a quick <laughs> What's the population of the United States? This is the best episode. <laughs> yeah, right. 332. It's probably really fun for some people. 330. 330. Okay. You said 332. Are you lying to me? Uh, do you want the exact number and you can yes, I'm give the us... exact number. Here, there you go. We have, yeah, we have here a death rate of uh, 0.2%. I, I was rounding before. It was 0.25 was... Uh, Jan's estimate on our actual number in the U.S. is 0.27. So if he was guessing for the U.S., he was fucking spot on. But unfortunately, <laughs> he was unfortunately, guessing for a nation that's on the other side of the world. Right, unfortunately, so far fewer Danes died. That's true. <laughs> well, okay, fortunately. <laughs> but unfortunately for his prediction accuracy metric, which is far more important than how many people died. All right, so here, I'll tell you what. I'll withdraw all of my objections about whether or not this was a bad prediction mm-hmm. because the probability theorist is telling me it was a bad prediction. Yes, thank you. All right, you. so you're right. You're right, John. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, anyways, uh, that's how to do a normal prediction, and that's how to tell if you were good or not. Uh, there's a more formal way to tell if you were good at predicting or not, and he has numbers to uh, show you how to do that. Anyone who's decent at math, uh, pretty decent at math, you should go look at that in the post that is linked, but it includes... In- in- ah. Includes things like square roots, which I just I dislike square roots as it is because then they give you imaginary numbers and I hate those. But more to the point, it's much harder to translate that all into words to say on air rather than having something to look at. So I'm going to completely skip past it. But it'll show you a way to mathematically show how good you are at predicting things rather than just I was within two thirds of a sigma or like, holy shit, I was more than two sigma away. Uh, you can get a better number on it. What's well, always fun once in a while listening to the song, le- listening to the less wrong posts. It'll start with the guy saying, "This post contains a number of illustrations and graphs that make it a lot easier to understand what the post is." Okay, this, cool. this is almost like the first episode we've had like that, where it's like you kind of need to look at the accompanying material. Yeah, it I helps mean, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, easy takeaway: less than two thirds sigma. Uh, if you, your prediction was was within less than two thirds sigma, you did good. If it was uh, more than two sigma away, you did absolutely awful. Uh, Advantages of this system are as such. Number one, the weak 50-50. Sometimes you are actually 50-50 on something, such as Scott's prediction that Bitcoin had a 50-50 shot of going over 3,000 in in 2019. That could be reformulated as Bitcoin Mu 3000 Sigma 1500, such that a price of 10,000 counts against the prediction. Now, a weak prediction still gives evidence of calibration. Because, yeah, if... if, uh, if Scott is predicting something like Bitcoin is going to go over 3,000, then he's probably thinking, you know, 3,000 to 4,000, 3,000 to 5,000 maybe. But if it goes to like, you know, 10,000, 100,000, then that would, still, yeah, that would <laughs> still count as a failure rather than, oh, well, you know, I was right because it was over 3,000, so it counts as a win. He thought Bitcoin is going to go over 3,000 in 2019? Yes. 
Well, 50-50. <laughs> Wasn't it over 3,000 a lot before that already? I'm looking at the graph right now because that number struck me as impossible. And Bitcoin is famously volatile. But like in 2017, it was 6,000. Yeah, yeah. Well, or the question 13, is, is it going to plummet by at least half or not? Oh, Oh, it's going. Is it going to go over three thousand in twenty nineteen? It's like it was. It started twenty nineteen at four thousand. So yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. Yeah. You're assuming Bitcoin only goes up, but at the time, it could have very well gone back down. People were saying, "Oh my God, four thousand is an insane amount of money for one Bitcoin. It's going to tank back down to four hundred dollars." I think so. Saying the, the Bitcoin prediction... is going to be over three thousand was actually a bit of a risky prediction. It said that as a shot of going, it has a 50, 50, 50, 50 shot of going over three thousand in twenty nineteen, or being over twenty. Over 3,000. Well, being or going are different. I don't know. But did he make the prediction in 2018 then? I, I'm just seeing what's in the post here. I'm, okay. read, I'm reading verbatim. It just says Scott's prediction had a 50-50 shot of going over 3,000 in 2019. Scott's prediction. Oh, I don't mean to, don't mean to nitpick. Bitcoin that said, I'm, this is one of those things where I get basket. pissed. Like I should have bought, you know, 10 Bitcoin in 2019, right? Yeah. Um, of course, you know, in the last year it's tanked considerably. but It's down to like 40,000 now? Yeah, but still, it's way up from 3000 that you could have gotten it for in 2019. I'll okay, so eye. at the beginning, in January 25th of 2019, he made the prediction that by the end of 2019, uh, Bitcoin would be over 1,000, 90%, over 3,000, 50%, over 5,000, 20%. Okay, that's fair. Thank you. Yeah, the summary made it confusing. Yeah. Um, all right, carry on. Thanks for bearing with me. No problem. Uh, where was I? That is actually a pretty good way of capturing confidence. I mean, yeah, it's not, not as good as the normal distribution, but, but it's something. But it doesn't look like this. It, it definitely... It <laughs> Nobody def can see what I have on my screen right now, but yeah, it's yeah. the worst thing I've ever looked at. <laughs> my eyes are bleeding. <laughs> but if you take all three of those together, you can tell that he thought that Bitcoin was going to be somewhere between one and 3,000, and he thought it was extremely unlikely it would be over 5,000. But uh, he still got two out of three predictions correct since Bitcoin went... I don't know. Where did it end 2019 at? Uh, it's hard to tell my little graph thing. It's 4,000, give or take 1,000. Or 4,000-ish. Okay. Yeah. My little graph makes me slide my finger, and I only have a, it's at a five-year scale, so hitting yeah. a particular day is hard. Okay. Uh, another advantage of normal distributions is overshooting and undershooting. If Biden had gotten 20% or 80% of the votes, both things would be strong evidence of my prediction being wrong, where the binary prediction can only say you were, you know, wrong in one direction. You were either right or you were wrong. Unidirectional wrongness. Mm -hmm. Another advantage. But, but that is a huge advantage, knowing which way you were wrong. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, yes, I guess he would win is the, is the easy answer or is the easy guess. And look, he won, but barely. Right. Mm -hmm. So, ha ha yeah, I just I'm just or reaffirming. I thought he would barely win, but he blew it out and took every state except Texas. You know, that's a that's yeah. also technically correct by the binary but actually a wrong prediction yeah you're predicting you would barely win yeah no this is a huge advantage i like it a lot yeah another advantage high confidence predictions are easier to calibrate in binary land a 99 percent prediction is very hard to calibrate because you need to make hundreds of them to get enough data unless many turn out wrong of course uh, a corresponding normal prediction would have a small sigma and thus give as much evidence of calibration as a 60 percent prediction so yeah you can if you're extremely confident in something, you can give it a very small uh, sigma and thus demonstrate to the world that uh, you were right in being extremely confident when you land right on that marker with your prediction. Uh, also, right for the wrong reasons. All of uh, the, these are three different predictions about the Biden winning. N50.6 with 0.5 sigma, N54 with 3 sigma, 
or N58 with Six Sigma give Biden a 91% win chance, but for very different reasons, and will thus lead people to update differently after observing that the actual result was 52. Because, yeah, the, the 50.67 with a 0.5 is a very strong confidence prediction that Biden is just barely going to win. Whereas the 58 with a 6% is, you know, a weaker prediction, but it also predicts that he's going to uh, do quite a bit better than he actually did. So you can be right for the wrong reasons, and this sort of normal prediction will show uh, what your wrong reasons were likely to be. Or will at least hint in that direction. Yeah, it's pretty similar to the overshooting, undershooting. Yeah, yeah. All right, that is that is basically everything I got on here. There was a little more at the end that said, I'm going to give you more stuff about normal predictions soon, expect more math, and I fled in terror. <laughs> I was so glad that we're not covering the advanced techniques, because that's where my brain just went. Well, I appreciate your mm. tutorial, and I, I can only imagine that for Jan writing this, like, you you covered a lot of inferential distance, dumbing it down for, <laughs> for uh, people like me to be able to even have an attempt at following it. I think Enosh helped bridge that gap a little more, and that, that helped uh, get me the rest of the way there. So Woo-hoo. I should try and make a prediction like this. I mean, why not, right? Honestly, I think everyone should do this, and I think it would be great if this uh, supplanted the binary predictions in the rationalist community. I really hope that next year's predictions that Scott releases will all be normal predictions, which I think will take a bit more time to make each prediction, yeah. but the extra data will be worth it. And also, he won't have to make... 100 200 predictions and only get a little bit of data each year he could make like 20 predictions and get even more data that's true he does have like the track record though of like here's my calibration doing it the old-fashioned way yeah if you're starting your if you're starting the track now Mm -hmm. and i think that's another advantage doing it this way right he could maybe like continue doing both for a while and like only give normal distributions for like 20 questions that that sounds like a good idea that'd be fun Yeah. yeah cool yeah i love it like i never bothered doing my own predictions because i just the whole percentages and then track it for years and stuff it didn't seem it didn't seem that great of a method especially because like my how confident i might be in any one subject changes from year to year and so i don't i don't know how good of a metric that would be but i think the normal distribution due to the fact that it gives you so much more data so much faster would be useful and i'm thinking about maybe making some predictions next year do it Hmm. you could make them anytime too how dare you give me more work right now? <laughs> I, I, maybe I should. I, I was literally thinking that as he said, and I was like, oh, I hope I hope no one calls me out on this. <laughs> Your homework yes. for next two weeks as to make one of these. I, oh, I could do one. In yeah, fact, that'd be, they could be great one. if we all did one. Challenge accepted. All we'll right. all do one. We're all going to do one. Okay. All of our listeners must also do one or no longer be in the conspiracy. I've got to go long, I, I, like a long way back. I lost a bet to... Uh, David Spearman on Discord hmm. about the percentage of young people that were going to vote in the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. The data came in for that like a year ago, and I forgot. I might have mentioned it on the air, but I, ju- I just remembered like last week. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot to like do anything about that. I think I owe you 10 bucks. Okay. So um, I'll, I'll get all that sorted. How off were you? I can't remember. Okay. Yeah. More than I thought I'd be, obviously. Okay. So um, he was right in, in the more pessimistic th- uh, guess that I think I'd said that they would come out in like 10% higher numbers than previous elections or something. Mm-hmm. I think that was my guess, and it turned out not to be that. But I can't remember what the actual number was. I'll have to go look it up. All right. Yeah, I got distracted. Sorry. Yeah, just one final one final thing about the Sigma thing. Uh, the two-thirds Sigma, I keep harping about because that's the line where you're supposed to be, I'm reasonably confident that uh, uh, 
50-50 confident that it's definitely going to fall within two-thirds six is what he said, if I read it correctly. That sounds right, yeah. yeah. That, that, that was my understanding, I think. Yeah. I'd have to look back at the numbers. Cool. So what time is it? Hey, that's not that long. See, we can totally cover two subjects in one episode. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I thought we were going to do the uh, Z-scoring and all. Oh, yeah. No, that's... Thank you for not <laughs> making me <laughs> There's logarithms. What's going oh on here? Oh, my God. Every mathematician's rolling their eyes that were too, like, you know, scared and stupid to under- like to dig those. Yeah. And, like, but for me, I'm like, you know, I remember, I vaguely remember logarithms from school, and I have no idea. I mean, like, I know what a logarithm is, but I never used them in my real life and only barely in school, so I have no intuitive grasp of them. Yeah. I don't remember any of that stuff. I should. Math's cool. I'll I'll learn math again eventually, maybe. No, I mean you'll you'll know it if it becomes important in your life ever. That's yeah. that's just basically the rule. And there's a lot of people who use logarithms, <laughs> and so it is important to them, and they know it. And uh, we are not those people. For people like us, it would be like being like really knowledgeable about like classic music or wine. I'm still It'd hoping. Be like, look at this esoteric thing that has no value to my life that like I know a lot about. Well, I no, must no, no, be no. super well off. It if it was be, you or me, if it was if it was one of us, it would be like if we never listened to classical music but knew all that about it, or we never drank wine but knew all that about it. It's it's intentionally learning stuff about something you never use anyway. That's fair. I guess I was the implicit assumption in my examples was that knowing stuff about classical music and wine is pointless no matter how much wine or music you listen to <laughs> yeah i think if you listen to a lot of classical music it's great to know that stuff right i know so much about insects <laughs> and you regularly like kill insects so. <laughs> kill them well i guess i, I feed know, them to you? things actually i'm uh, cu- oh, right. i'm cultivating bioactive terrariums right now so i'm right now studying uh springtails I was, really just, I was really just hoping that you regularly kill insects like any good human does. And actually, I really want to get a tailless whip scorpion, which I promise that I will hide from Steven. Thank you. <laughs> you. You tried to share a video, and I was like, oh, luckily, I know that Signal does uh, previews, and I covered the screen while I deleted the, the message. Even if, you're not, <laughs> even if you're not scared of insects and think they're adorable like me, this thing looks fucking scary. This isn't an insect. This is a science well, fiction monster. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you were going to say correctly that it's an arachnid, but... Oh! <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a horror show. Yeah. All right. Should we do our second main subject? Yes. Does somebody else want to talk more than me on this one? This one's uh, succinctly summarized in the title. Change is bad. By Zvi in 2017. Yeah, this is the same Zvi we all know for his awesome COVID uh, work that he's been doing the last two years. Yeah, I like that at the top. He was like, I'm making this now and I want to be able to reference it going forward. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I, you know, didn't check and I wouldn't know how to check, but... I'm sure that he went back a lot and be like, remember how I said change sucks? Like every time like he's talking about how things are bad. <laughs> I I mean, the the post is almost as succinct as the title. Like I tried to pull out just the core parts and I still pulled out like almost half the post mm-hmm. because the post is very short and gets right to the point. So yeah, it's short a good sweet. post. Good writing. Yeah. 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 yeah so uh, almost all changes are bad. What people actually want is one of those rare, carefully chosen, good, friendly changes. They do exist within change space. <laughs> I, I'm reminded of the saying that not every what is it? Not every change is an, is an improvement. However, every improvement is a change. Yeah, which is technically correct. But I think Zvi is pushing back on this that like changes have more costs than you think. Just because something is an improvement doesn't necessarily mean it is net good. Because uh, it's a change. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that change itself is bad, and so we should take in the cost of the fact that we're changing something um the well let, let's let's go ahead and read the first little part here yeah the more optimized things currently are the less likely any given change is to be good uh 
the more effort people have put into optimizing other things based on the thing that you're looking to change, the less likely any given change is to be good. <laughs> you could break a lot of things. When you break those things, you cause harm. Even a net improvement can make a person or group feel worse off. Yes. The one thing that I'll nitpick on this, because that's the only contribution I can have is nitpicking, uh, <laughs> is he's like, yeah, the, you know, the change space is huge, right? And it's like, yeah, but people don't make changes by just like grabbing part of something and hitting it, right? Have you ever seen an app? Uh, <laughs> but even that, like they're not, they're not going in genetic mutation style and like literally just like slamming a string of characters into the code base somewhere and seeing what happens. That's yeah. like, in that case, that is like, yes, that is a change. And most changes are bad in that sense. Yeah. But like, now this is apps are at least a lot more like natural selection. Mm. Um, can I, I kind of disagree. Can I give my example? Like, I think a lot of changes in apps are just done because, uh, as Paul Graham says, if your programmers aren't doing interesting things they're going to leave for a project where they can do interesting things but a lot of software is already working and doing what it's supposed to do so your programmers are going to leave and you're going to flounder if you don't have them making changes or something but the changes don't need to be oh i totally agree yeah but i want to give my archetypical go ahead i was gonna say most apps now are like worse than they used to be Mm. but i'm just saying the changes aren't drawn randomly from change space yes right they they are directional they make some sense maybe they're intending their intent there's intent behind them and there's like design that said they come off you know things go bad but i want to hear your archetypal example my archetypal archetypal you know what i'm trying to say yeah (laughs) Uh, example of change being bad is my alarm app on my phone which just comes with uh uh, the android phones i have that one i'm really curious to see how they fucked up an alarm app they didn't fuck it up they changed it it looked one way before and then one day i woke up and it looked slightly different and uh the main thing that they changed was how it looks, so I had to adjust what I did when I set my alarm. And also importantly, the AM and PM are now black and white, and it's not clear which one is the selected one. It's like no, the you've... selected one is the one that's like usually like different from the background color. Okay, right. I, I, I don't know. I'll take your word for it. Like, like I if, always if... have to tap it now to make sure it's on the right one because the entire <laughs> interface is black and white. Some of the numbers are black, some of the things are white, and AMPM, like one of them has white background with black letters. The other one has back, black background with white letters. That is horrible. Yeah. yeah. Like AM is white letters, white background with black letters. PM is black background with white letters. And then when I click on one of them, it might swap. And when I click on it, that's when I realized that's the one that was selected. And either I didn't have to click on it or, you or I did have to click on it. But I can't tell from looking at it which one is the selected one. No, the way you described it makes it sound like whatever one is the white text, it sounds like that's the selected one. Okay. Right? I don't know. If you... I can memorize it. (laughs) That's just... That sounds terrible. But that's the thing. Maybe I am someone who just got this phone, and I have memorized, oh, the white background is the selected one. Easy peasy. I will always click that. Then, six months from now, they change it again to, like, you know, now it's whichever one has the border around it is the selected one or whatever. And, like, okay, I guess I can just re-memorize that, but... I am doing more mental effort now for no reason. I now have to forget my old memorization, new the learned mem- new memorization. And sure, that's not a lot of effort, but it's more effort. You changed something. You imposed a cost on me. There was literally no net benefit. And I just want to set the alarm. Yeah. yeah. What, what were you going to say, Jace? Um, have you tried using it in night mode? It is, is night mode, yes. Oh, so I'm now I'm try- uh, I think I have like a screen reader for, for nighttime that kind of fixed it because it, it changed the coloration. I couldn't remember if it was the... Anyway. Yeah. Uh, the other thing was just like... But, but I agree with you because mm. you have to reteach yourself how to use an app that you... Like even if Constantly. there's a very slight um, 
improvement in a website or an app. And like a lot of the time there's like cosmetic things. Um, you move everything around. Yeah. And, and now you have to re-memorize where everything is. Yeah. I despise the Microsoft ribbon that they have on their like Word and Excel and stuff. Oh my God. Because first of all, the menus, at least you had a word for each menu and then a drop down list. And it was the same font. You could read down the list what you needed, right? That's assuming <laughs> now you it's had... a bunch of icons. You can't even see. Yeah. There's, like, that, so that's assuming in there. you've never used the program before. You could just scroll through every menu and read down the list. Now there's all these ribbons. The icons are various shapes and sizes. Literally some of them are rectangles. And you don't even know what the squares. hell. Like They're you have to sizes. hover over it. You have see, to like, hover you're over like, okay, there's a picture of a clipboard with like a check mark on it. What the hell does that mean? Yeah, it is. Oh my God. They, screwed the pooch when they made this change and fortunately i had already been using it back when it was intuitive and uh when you went to the drop down menu there was the hotkey next to each one so i very quickly memorized all the hotkeys that i needed to use and fortunately they uh they grandfathered in the old hotkeys would continue to work with the ribbon and i could just use those for the things i needed to use but then like some things they introduced a new function or two that i actually did find useful and now I like was like, what the fuck is the hotkey for this? I got to go to goddamn Google. <laughs> Anytime I want to learn a new app, I can't use the app just and learn it intuitively. I have to Google, how do I do this thing? Which is, you know, Google's always there, so that's great. But I don't think that should be the way things work. Or you can Anyways, just use I'm the... being a man at the yells at the class right now. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I think it's valuable and it's, it's a good example. Um, I think everyone can think of apps that like just, why did you do this? This makes it worse. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but even if it doesn't make it worse, just any change at all is bad because you have to relearn things. Um, if there is enough of a net improvement to make it worth relearning, that can outweigh the bad, but there is still that bad. There's still, like there's still, there's still yeah. a cost. Yeah. I would want to say it's a net improvement. Like what they did for like setting time and well, you, you know, a lot of this is going to be visual, but like if I want to update the time of the event that I have in my calendar here, mm -hmm. they got rid of this little wheel mm -hmm. for a while. Okay. Like on, on, on iPhone, you set like, Hey, I want to do a time. And like this is the hours, this is the minutes, this is a and p.m. Yeah. Super intuitive. Yeah, yeah. They got rid of that for a while, like for one update, and okay. everyone hated it because mm. it made it really confusing. Like, wait, what the fuck time is this set for? Mm. I got to go in here and type. <laughs> like, that's so dumb. Anyway, so they 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 fixed that on something. Maybe it was the alarm. Now that I think about it. Um. In any case, uh, you can make things better, yeah. right? One another funny thing is like all the Google apps look all the same now. Like Mail, Chrome, and whatever. Oh my god. The logos are like really, really close. It's horrific. Yeah. And that that was a marketing thing. I hear all the Google engineers screamed their heads off when it happened and the marketers are like, Well, fuck you, we got the power. We want everything to look the same because we don't care about our users. We I mean, just want brand recognition. You get a glance at the thing. You're like, oh, that's a Google thing, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. it's got brand recognition, but it's like, is that the Google Play app or is that the Google Maps app? Yeah. And then you got to click Gmail? it to find out. Is that yeah, fucking madness. The faster and bigger. Basically, okay. this whole post is just fuel for the old man yells at clouds fires. But so. I want to say specifically that we are only touching the surface level problem here where uh, it's the change itself that has costs that annoys us. There, uh, he's pointing at the the bigger thing that like if something has been around for a long time, people have created a lot of things around that thing, optimized it. I think school was a pretty good example that was brought up. Um, government school sucks. It's terrible. I think it should be abolished. I think it may be worse than the FDA. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but it's been around for school kills less people than the FDA. That's true. <laughs> We're just gonna go that way. But does it damage people psychologically <laughs> enough to um, make it out? I don't know. Anyways, point uh, being that it's been around for like a century, and people have optimized their lives around school, uh, 
and the expectations at school is there in a lot of ways. And, and uh, largely if, parents use it as free daycare. Yes. And if you make major changes to it right now, even though almost any change would be an improvement, it's going to massively disrupt things because people have optimized a lot of their lives and where they live. Like the hundreds of thousands of dollars they poured into a home based purely on its school district. Uh, and then you change that on them is a massive life disruption. And there's tons of things like that. Anything that the government gets involved in has a regulation about and that sticks around for more than a decade is like that, where any change is going to hurt a lot of people who have optimized their lives based on what the, the rule was. Even a net improvement can make a person or group feel worse off. Yeah. yeah. Where uh, they did kind of break school um, with... With COVID. Uh, yeah. Well, even a net... Lockdown. Even a net improvement could actually make you worse off. Like I learned in high school and I had to ask somebody else because I didn't believe the person who told me, even though I think it was a teacher, that uh, the money that goes into the school from the government is based on the surrounding income mm -hmm. of the, the, the income, the average income surrounding the school. Yeah. And I, that struck me as so obviously insane <laughs> that I thought the person was bullshitting me. And then I, I confirmed it. So like... You could say, hey, this thing that's obviously fucking stupid, we're going to stop doing that. Every school gets the same. It's based on size. And right? then people freak the fuck out because they moved there for a reason. Exactly. So, like, that will improve the quality of a lot of schools and decrease the quality of a lot of other schools. Mm -hmm. And you're right. So, like, home value can be based on, like, look, it's within walking distance of this nice school. And because your house costs a million fucking dollars because you're an idiot, uh, it's a great school. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so, those people would be hosed, right? Yeah. But everyone who's not in a million dollar house gets gets a better education yeah and i mean you're not necessarily an idiot if you're specifically buying the school just no i don't know. buy in that area if you don't have kids i just get i get annoyed at house prices <laughs> and wow. how schools get funded apparently yeah uh yeah but you were sorry jace you were saying <laughs> it's just continuing uh the faster and bigger you make changes the more other things you're likely to break and the more critically that you will break them at minimum even when you're change is strictly for the better those things then must change to adapt in many cases they're broken entirely beyond repair and this goes on to break other things yes and that it's usually a lot harder to build or repair something than it is to break that thing so um i i don't know what else to say about that <laughs> steven has the perfect example hmm? um with your sink earlier oh. uh just well, jumpstart my brain it was a lot easier to break your sink than to repair it uh I mean, well, it's always easier to break stuff than it is to fix it, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I, the, this doesn't tie in exactly perfectly. Like, so I was trying. I was leaking a couple months ago, or a month or something, and I there's a point when you're taking something apart, or at least when I am, like to try and fix it. Where you're like, okay, fuck fixing this. I just want to take it all the way apart, and I'll never be able to put it back together again. But I want to see what's broken. Um, yeah, I don't know if this fits in there really neatly. What it did do is make me good at putting in the next sink thing that, or the next faucet that we installed. So fuck yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that fits in, but um. He does make two more points here. Modern life is highly optimized. Often, it is optimized for the wrong things. Nevertheless, it is highly, highly optimized. And also, older people have had more time to optimize and have less time to optimize again. So it makes sense that they hate change even more than others. They should. Which is why you see the Amelia clouds a lot. <laughs> Much like Stephen and me just were. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, both... Good points, I think. It makes me feel some more sympathy to the olds. And um, and yeah, modern life is incredibly intricate and interconnected. Yeah. And plucking on plucking on those things. I mean, it can be disruptive and it's it can be a net good, but always remember that the, the change is going to have a cost and there that is bad. Uh, a thing that I think is a really good example is hospital software. Yeah. Um, in particular, uh, man, what's... Electronic health records. 
Yeah, there, there's a specific program that for some reason just completely escaped my mind. But you, like, first of all, you've got, like, you know, people that have spent eight or more years in education learning how to use this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, however many years they've been on the job. Um, and even if they were to replace it with better software, which I spent a really long time wishing they did. <laughs> like, everyone hates the software, uh, but, like, but also you would just ruin an entire hospital system if you tried to just entirely replace that software yeah yeah it's tough and i'm you know we'll go through more of the post but like that does strike me as like a problem that's like actually desperately need a fixing kind of not no matter the cost because you're right if we were just like to roll out the change you know monday morning everyone goes in and another software that they were used to works because everyone's using a fresh new app that's actually intuitive and whatever <laughs> um people would die right yeah uh, so it can't be done that way but it does need to be done just for the sake of like uh being able to connect it to a secure, uh, like to connect the information to a secure remote offsite area. So like if I say change cities and want to get my health records from my old doctor, I don't have to call them and have them fax the paperwork that they got from 1998. Right. Like, no, just how about they can look it up. Right. Uh, the current system's not set up to, to accommodate that. Um, uh, it's, do you remember like using like word in like the early two thousands, like Microsoft word yeah. where like the top, say third to half of the screen was just buttons of how to format the that document was what we were complaining about earlier well you're talking about excel which is like no i think you were just saying microsoft suite right oh the whole microsoft suite. yeah fair yeah. enough but like it it's like that but it's like just like with all the buttons on that you don't use any of the button mm -hmm. you just want to type mm -hmm. all i want to do is just say hello and no you've got to click through 36 buttons first i still use text edit as my primary text editor smart That's a good for one. that reason yeah <laughs> Have you guys heard of the COBOL Cowboys? No. So uh, COBOL is an old programming language, and it's used in some, I think it's some mainframes uh, in really old systems, some government systems. I, I don't remember exactly what it is used for, but there are some systems that still use it, and the cost of changing away from that system to a new one would be a massive overhaul of an entire infrastructure. Like it would be tens of millions of dollars at least. I think a lot of banks use COBOL. Banks too. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were, be you know, they were some of the first people to start storing data digitally, right? Yeah. So yeah. They used what was available. I mean, a minimum of tens of millions of dollars, probably quite a bit more. Uh, but fewer and fewer programmers learn COBOL because it's only used for those old legacy systems. It's like learning Latin. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Except there's still like four or five dragons in the world that speak only Latin and you need somebody to speak with them. So there's there's a few ancient senior programmers still working that no COBOL. They should COBOL. call them dragons. Although I guess they called them cowboys. Yeah, yeah. They call themselves <laughs> the COBOL cowboys. Uh, and they make a lot of money because there's only like seven, eight of them left that are alive and programming <laughs> COBOL. But uh, someday they're going to die, and then all our bank money will be worth zero dollars. <laughs> it's, it's more than seven or eight, but what is fun is like, yeah, if you want to get into a niche job maintaining gross old crap, like that is that is a way to do it, right? Hey, no one wants to learn this. I'll do it. Hmm. And Charge it. Doesn't yeah, uh, <laughs> one of our, doesn't carry from the meetups, doesn't he program in haskell yeah or i was something. just gonna say yeah uh, that haskell's similar which like yeah it's job security and it's probably uh uh salary security too right yeah like anyone can go learn javascript but yeah. <laughs> no i'm a haskell programmer which yes means that there are very few jobs for me but they all pay really well right there's and no, there's uh, very little competition for those jobs right there's no uh, haskell boot camps yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, he he says that, yes, we need change. The only constant is change. Other things are changing and breaking your things, forcing them, too, to change and all that. 
We're all slowly dying of old age. And forces move to wipe out all value in the universe. Plus, we're getting pretty tired of the same old restaurants and albums and TV shows. (laughs) So yeah, change is inevitable. We need change. He's saying, you know, but when you do change, don't fall for something must be done. This is something, therefore we must do it. Also, we don't want to fall for something better could be done. So until we figure it out, no one change anything. He says, try to explore and experiment so that we have a better idea of what we are breaking before we implement things on too large a scale. Then we change things anyway because we have to, but with our eyes open. And that's, uh, there were a few more lines after that, but I wanted to end it right there because that was, I thought, a darn good ending. Um, Yeah, change is bad. Don't forget that change is bad, but got to change anyway. So just don't forget that the change is bad part is there offsetting any any, uh, increases and maybe offsetting them by a lot. I was I got rabbit holed a little bit reading um, the Wikipedia page on Goddard's Law when he linked to optimizing for the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Did you talk about how right now the relative baseline is really 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 good? No, I did not. Because that, that's important to emphasize, right? Like sure. we're, we're we're highly optimized, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of like, well, little tweak here could fuck things up. Whereas like if we went back two thousand years, basically anything would be an improvement, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like I could change whatever your pillow is made out of, and it's gonna be better because it's not a rock, right? <laughs> So, <laughs> I was about to say you could make it a rock because Actually, I think even two thousand years ago the pillows weren't rocks. Um, Tw- you there's know, fifty thousand years ago. Fine. <laughs> In that case, the pillow was the um, the dead baby of your enemy. <laughs> That's why you had to keep conquering other tribes so you would have pillows. They tend to rot after a while. Yeah. What were you saying, Jay? Sorry. Oh, um, I just wanted to be one of those. Well, actually, guys. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> there's. Some evidence, and I'm, I'm really interested in this, uh, that getting like a Japanese-style futon, which barely has a pillow, like basically sleeping on the floor is better for your body because, like, for the same reason that um, I've started trying to wear, like, just be barefoot most of the time or wear, like, barefoot shoes, hmm. um, where I also believe that, like, the... I keep wanting to say that there's good evidence, or then I want to say there's some evidence, but I think there's just a lot of, you know, people with opinions. Hmm. But, uh, like, shoes that have built-in arches and ankle support and cushion like ruins your feet's ability to be feet and then you need more cushion and more arch support every time i'm always torn on that because I've, I've you know like the intuitive argument is like well our ancestors survived for a long time with like basically no footwear and they did well enough right there's living but, people that do yeah that too but like i'm torn be- because like am i hurting my feet by constantly cushioning them in nice shoes or am i helping them in the same way that like I'm helping my eyes by wearing glasses, right? Like, my feet work. They worked well enough for my ancestors not to die. But now they're better because now they've got shoes on them, right? Or is it like... um... I think we've got enough generations that have worn feet or shoes their entire lives to to figure they're not so bad that it cripples you. It doesn't cripple you, but I wonder... Like, it's a bad thing to have heard. And I, I went the opposite way and bought an expensive purple mattress. Which actually I really enjoy, and I ha- I did try those Japanese futons when I was in Japan and uh, hated them. Yeah, they're probably really uncomfortable if you're not used to it. And but... uh, with wearing barefoot shoes, you also have to condition your feet because they do hurt a lot worse than regular shoes at first. Because, but it's because my feet don't have the musculatures like that they need to support themselves yet. Yeah, so, I don't want to. Uh, that, that's a little a project I'm tinkering with. Maybe I can, awesome. if I find more evidence one way or the other or i can sort of report my results <laughs> yeah re- report back if, if your feet still hurt when you try and stand like because I, I bought a standing desk for work or one that goes from sitting to standing and i was messaging a coworker because he had one and i was like how the hell are you doing this i've been here for 15 minutes and my feet hurt and he's like oh i'm wearing shoes oh and i'm like well 
I, you, you also usually have like a, a standing pad, pretty thick thing I, that I bought a cushion. Th- I bought feet. a thick ass standing pad first because yeah. I don't want to wear shoes inside because I don't want to. I didn't have any like you know. I, it's carpeted. It's upstairs and all that stuff. Okay, so this it's, is pad plus shoes is what he's saying. Uh, I don't know what he had, but uh, I I, tr- I bought the pad. It wasn't enough, so I ended up just getting. I had some old shoes that were like perfectly smooth on the bottom because they're like five years old, mm-hmm. and just cleaned them with a rag. Did it and work? Now, now they're now they're my indoor shoes. Yeah, now I can stand at work. If I want, oh, cool. which I rarely do. So now the pad's useless. Because your musculature is that weak. Yeah, basically. Okay. But I wonder if maybe standing just sucks. Yeah. Like, maybe anybody would. That's that's why I was curious about, you know, Jason, a year. Time, how long you can comfortably stand it now? And then come back to us in a year and be like, hey, look, it tripled. Or it's like, oh, it's within a minute of the same. I've always had a lot of problems standing still. Like, if I ever was volunteering for something at a con, I would ask for something where I walk around at least if I'm, you know, menial labor. Because just standing still tended to hurt my back my yeah. upper back a lot and you've I don't got know a, why you've got to pivot you know or you know raise one leg and you know I, yeah, yeah. that's why i think a trade desk is a good idea but it sounded like you didn't like yours uh i liked it a lot it's just that after about 20 minutes of walking on the tread desk my knees started to ache a little bit because i am of an age and or maybe just because you're not conditioned for it or maybe because i'm not conditioned to it yeah maybe if i would have just kept at it for for long enough eventually i could have been like walking for an hour and my knees would be like yeah we're well lubricated and running along just fine sir I'm really glad I had an opportunity to try one of those at an office before I bought one because it turns out that I can't read on a monitor and walk comfortably. That was what I was like, worried about when I thought like, of it. You move. You're going up and down a lot. Yeah. And, <laughs> and your distance to and from the monitor changes a little bit. Because yeah. I'm tried like, a... I'm just, you know, zooming up and down and, you know, in and out. And I'm like, I, I can't sit and read like this. And then, you know, never mind typing where I'm moving away from my keyboard a lot. Yeah. I didn't have so. a problem with the reading, but the typing. Yeah. That's yeah. quite a bit more difficult. When I've been running, I, I tried um, reading or even like watching a show on my phone. Mm-hmm. I just listen to podcasts or music now because it was the same thing. I was, I was like, I don't. I wonder how this would work with the tread desk. I mean, I guess you're not actually running, but but sitting for long periods is so bad for your body. Is it that, is. <laughs> I, I want to know like how a scientist would custom design a skeleton and musculature to be optimized for sitting because that would you know. I, I want, well, I guess I don't want that body because I wouldn't ever get laid, but <laughs> I'm curious very what it would look like. Mutants. You'd only have, like, <laughs> limited positions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe just, like, an exosuit. Um... I think just the most important thing would be get up and move every couple hours. It's just hard when you get in the flow, you know? Did anyone ever watch uh, Silicon Valley? No. Mm, I I saw a few episodes, and then it was because I was actually working at a startup, mm. and my coworkers were watching it. They are like, this is our life. And I was like... I don't know, they were sharing jokes about it all the time, so I was just like, I'll check it out, fine. And then I, I couldn't do it. I was like, it, it is our life, and it's terrible. <laughs> luckily, it's, it's comically... This is too real. <laughs> luckily, it's comically over the top after a little while, but the... might have been the last season or the second to last season. And I only know the guy's name because now he's on SNL, uh, Aristotle Atari. He had That's one his of those... real name? Yeah. Wow. That's um, cool bold name. parents. Right. Uh, Command on Johnny was like his manager or whatever on the show. And they're, you know, all softer people. And Aristotle's character is just, like, unbearably annoying. Like, he's, like, just the intense nerd. But he's got, like, this kind of, you mentioned exoskeleton. And it's, like, a belt thing where when you lean back, like, the little leg parts that are constantly dragging behind your legs fall back. And you can kind of just sit anywhere. Oh. And so he, he makes a big show of kind of, like, whenever he goes I've anywhere. And he sits. And it, <laughs> and it just, you see Kamel just being super pissed at him all the time. Because he thinks it's unbearable. <laughs> 
I've seen anyway. so- something like that in real life. The... Yeah, be- ability to sit wherever you want sounds fun. I... It sounds great, but it looks ridiculous. It looks ridiculous. And I <laughs> honestly can't imagine it would be that comfortable. Maybe it is, but I don't know. All right. That's that's about all I got. This was a fun post. Um, you know, the, the the takeaway is be mindful that what you're changing will have impacts. Some yeah. of them negative. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, again, I just want to emphasize that it's not worth the effort, mm-hmm. right? It, at some point, we'll have to redo. We'll have to redo hospital software, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, like just just even to make it a a more secure platform, so they they can't keep getting uh, what do you call those ransomwares, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, that's like the easiest way to make money if you're an asshole, right? And you're tech savvy, and you work with tech savvy Russians, but um, just just ransomware some hospitals, and uh, I don't know. I mean, it's worth paying the cost at some point, right? Yeah. But yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> people people want trade offs to be one sided, right? Like, oh no, it has to be all good. They're you know, I'm going to pretend there are no drawbacks. It's like, well, why? There can be drawbacks, but it's net positive, right? I wonder how much it would cost a hospital just to do nightly backups. Well, they do. I they think do. they do do them nightly, but you lose the entire day's worth of stuff. And uh, I think and it's it worth the, it to not incentivize terrorists. It depends. It depends on nightly or digital it, terrorists. It depends on the place, but. Well, and it depends on where they store them. Like, are they storing them in a physical drive at the hospital? I would hope it's physically removed from the the actual servers, yeah. Well, like, I guess, I mean, if, if you left it in the same building, then it's, like, prone to, like, any sort of accident, right? Yeah, but, but the accident we're optimizing against isn't a fire. Hospitals don't burn down, really, unless you have a joker in your city. <laughs> <laughs> they get ransomware. It's epic. Sorry. <laughs> I just had to look it up because you continue to talk about it, and it's driving me nuts. What's epic? The, uh... Electronic health record software. Ah, okay. I just know that is not very epic, but <laughs> it's the one that everyone uses. I'll have to ask my wife which one she uses, but I know that hers does nightly backups, and of course, it interrupts the flow of work. And like yeah, after that, yeah. then you know, once it's done interrupting you, then anything that you've finished working on isn't saved till the next day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so like that's fine. It's better than nothing, but I'm not sure where that stuff is stored or how securely, right? Because a lot it's still... is still done on paper too, which is really? insane. Yeah, wow. physical binders are a big way to handle hospital patient I, information. I could show you a photo of the storage for some old studies. Like, we had a storage closet that was just completely full of binders. You know, like, the joke when you open a closet that's, like, floor to ceiling packed with something. And <laughs> this was literally, like, you know, for the store. They're like, yeah, but there's, here's our, uh, you know, our old studies. And what? it was just like, if that fell on me, I would die. I'm not even joking. <laughs> I, I remember um, Scott Alexander's post about his IRB nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they required him to have two physical binders somewhere locked in a drawer. Yep. Ridiculous shit. I, I was, a, uh, I, I worked in that industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say I was um, a research coordinator, but, um, technically I was a data something or other. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was like... the person that w- ran around the hospital trying to find the data that was like scribbled on a napkin mm-hmm. <laughs> And then put it in all the places it needs to go. Well, shall we thank our patron? Yeah, that sounds fun. Well, Zachary Curtis, thank you for supporting our podcast. There's a lot of change that is bad, but the kind of change that isn't bad is when you support our podcast. That's not a change, <laughs> damn it. What am I... It would be to somebody who's not currently supporting. Yeah, so that would be a good change. Yeah. But we're thinking Zachary, not someone who isn't supporting us. That's how, right. how do I tie this in? Uh, you made a po- You made a change that was uh, a change at some point. We appreciated it <laughs> when you went from not supporting to supporting. Damn, Man, nice. I, Thank you, Stephen. I, I was going to say that was tortured, but as long as, all right, you liked it. Yeah, it worked. It was good. <laughs> anyway, you rock. Thanks, Zach. Yeah. Or Zachary. Or Zachary Kurtz. 
I, did I say Curtis? I meant Zachary Kurtz. I think you said. Okay. Either way, that's awesome. You rock. Thank you. Uh, we all really appreciate it, and uh, it keeps us going. Woo. Thanks, friend. Cool. All right. And I guess with that, we will wrap up, and we'll see everybody back again in two weeks. Sounds fun. I always, I never had a time. 